All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office, toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 54 points, or two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 52 points, or 1.2%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 342 points, or 2.6%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 7.2%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is down 11.3%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is down 18.8%. Well, a little bit of a rollover on the the market's summer rally that we've had that started back mid-July. A little bit of give back. But not too well, bad. You know, Friday, I think they were saying it was the worst day for the NASDAQ in about five weeks. But, you know, a little bit of give back uh, when at one time from the lows that we saw in June to the, I guess, the highs, which were of this, of this counter move. If you, you know, some people, I'm going to say that's a counter, it's a counter move in an otherwise bear market. I, I know that, that, that sentiment is not necessarily shared by by the two of you, uh, but we're basically up eighteen percent low to 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 the the high point here that occurred. Looks like about three four trading days. Like I think it was earlier, early this week, or could have been last week. Sixteen. It was on the sixteenth. Okay, so that mm-hmm. was that was that which would have been on Tuesday. 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 Yeah, that would be Tuesday. So and, and, if we and, and, if we get deep into the technical weeds. The, the this move that we've that's been going on now for you know two months took us right up to the 200 day moving average I mean like right on it and then we pulled back from it so you know tech, a technical uh, analysis or analyst would would say well you know that's not necessarily a great sign that we couldn't get above the 200 day line we are way and I mean, way above the 50-day line. 
I don't have the specific statistics on how much we're overbought on a short-term basis, but we are as above that 50-day moving average as we've been in quite some time. Definitely this year, probably going back maybe into the year, into the previous year, or maybe even the year before. But I mean, we're just, it's a powerful move that has been made off of this low. And, and I know there's just, there's been a lot of, uh, of uh, speculation as to why, you know, this has occurred. You know, I, I, I firmly believe, uh, which, which may be the, the, the camp shared by the somewhat bearish crowd, that this move is because of, of this uh, expectation amongst investors that the Federal Reserve is going to somehow start cutting rates in 2023. And I don't, I don't understand where they're getting uh, this expectation that the Fed is going to be cutting rates. When all I've heard from, from really the most vocal of the Federal Reserve, the, the ones that actually have voting authority, none of them in the last couple of weeks has said anything uh, about uh, interest rates being cut next year. But – you know, as it's, we well know, the Federal Reserve can have one story uh, one month and a totally different story a couple of months later. It's it's all going to be data dependent, and we know that, and that's how the Fed is operating, and it's going to be pretty much predicated on what happens with inflation. Before I get to you, Joe, I'm sorry. I have to say this because this is on A1, the front page of Friday's Wall Street Journal. And the store, the headline says, Wall Street bets the Fed is bluffing in inflation game. Fed officials try to dismiss investors' view that inflation has peaked. See, there, there's, there's a lot of folks at the Fed that don't believe that inflation has peaked. And I, that's just, I think this is another uh, wish for lack of a better word, that I think some investors are this this wish, okay, peak inflation has passed. All right, well, maybe peak inflation has passed, but what if we sit here at 8.5% for a few months? Is, is, is the Fed going to just say, oh, okay, well, we don't need to raise interest rates anymore because, interest, because inflation has stopped going up. It's just stayed steady at 8.5%. I don't think that's going to – I don't think that's going to cut it. Well, I mean, next week we're in a little bit more because PC is coming out. So Kyle and I were talking about that Friday. I think, Jeff, there's another side of it as you look at earnings. I mean, we all talked about the beginning of this quarter and what impact are rising rates and inflation going to have on earnings, and it wasn't as bad as maybe we all thought it could be. You know, you look at Walmart at the beginning of the week, all right, they beat on the top and bottom line. And their outlook looked pretty good. Target's outlook looked pretty good for the second part of the year. So there's it, multiple things yeah. going on that, that helped the market. I think earnings expectations and this reporting season was a little bit better than maybe some people thought it could be. They, 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 people didn't use the excuse to throw the baby out with the bathwater with their forward guidance and get out of the way. So Well, I, I think, I think some companies did. I mean, I know Target definitely, they had a much lower bar, and they lowered it even further for themselves. But like you said, Joe, their forward outlook was right in line with analysts' expectations because they a lot of the, cons, the consumer product companies that sell consumer goods, they oversupplied. 
And we saw what happened with Target earlier this year. They got just absolutely <laughs> clobbered and took and took the hit. Walmart on their last earnings report, same thing, where they had so much supply, and now they have this over-inventory situation where they have to start unwinding it. And the way they unwind that is by creating deals and having sales. And if you go to a mall, you look at any store, 50% off, 60% off, buy one, get one free – that obviously can can wind up hurting their bottom line to a point, but it's also helping bring consumer prices down on the product side of things. Now, the service side of things is a whole nother story, and I know we're coming up to a commercial break, so we'll take that break, and we'll pick this up on the other side. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's MoneyWise program, uh, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street this past week, before we went to break, I was just making the comment about the kind of product consumption side of the market, you know, all kind of correlated to monetary inflation. And has monetary inflation peaked? Have we had, we, have we seen the peak for inflation? Are we going to see it come down? Jeff, I know you're making the point that, yeah, we've come down from the 9.1% peak inflation that we saw in June. We saw the July print come out at what, 8.5, 8.6. So it's come down. But you were making the point in the last segment that if we continue to see inflation still running with an eight handle, 8% plus for an extended period of time, then that's going to continue to keep the Fed on the interest rate hike process. And I think what the market has been interpreting after we received the last consumer price index number is that, okay, we know the Fed's not meeting until, what, September 21st is their next meeting when they're going to be making an interest rate uh, decision. A lot of the Fed governors have been coming out saying it could most likely going to be another three-quarters of 1% or 75 basis points, where I think some of the market participants more on the bullish side are saying that the Federal Reserve could be easing their foot off of the interest rate gas to a point and maybe only raise 50 basis points. And I know you were mentioning an article in the last segment that you wanted to read some more out of. So if ladies and gentlemen, you'll, you'll indulge me for a moment. I want to read some from this article because there's some points that the writer of this article is making. And then there's also some direct quotes from several federal reserve governors uh, about what they see in the marketplace. Now, So markets pummeled by the Fed's rate increases in the first half of the year are racing upward. The S&P 500 is up. I said it was 18%. The paper says there's 17% from its mid-June low, which is one of the biggest reversals we've seen since the fourth quarter 2018 down 20%. And we had within three months, I think the market was up over 20% on the other side. And that's when the Fed said they weren't going to be raising interest rates in 2019. Now we've done this, we've, we've moved 17, 
in a matter of five weeks, right? <clears throat> For many investors, the rebound reflects the belief that inflation has peaked and, exp- and, and the expectation that the Fed will shift from raising rates to lowering them sometime next year. And the Fed has said absolutely nothing about this. But, Nothing. But can, I, can I just interject real quick? Yeah, real remember, quick. Remember back, remember back in 2022, they were saying the Fed wasn't going to be doing moving rates until 2023. They weren't well, going to be touching rates. So I, things can change in a blink okay. of an eye with the Fed. They usually yeah, but, do. But, but, but they usually well, do. That's right. usually the, only, do. the only way this changes in the blink of an eye is if inflation changes in a blink of an eye. And I don't think any of us believe that inflation is going to change in the blink of an eye because it never has, right? So if the Fed's interest rate decision-making process is totally dependent on inflation statistics, well, we know they're not, they're not coming down that fast, right? So well, this notion, down, what, this notion, they this came notion that they're going to be cutting them next year, uh, you know, A parade of Fed officials has tried to push back, quote, there is a disconnect between me and the markets, end quote. That was quoted from Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari here in the last week. An expectation the Fed will start cutting interest rates in the next six to nine months isn't realistic, says Mr. Kashkari. It is more likely the Fed will raise rates to some point And then we will sit there until we get convinced that inflation is well on its way back down to 2%. Now, we've all been debating this 2% number for for a while, and we all seem to be in agreement that what's probably going to happen is the Fed will keep raising interest rates. Maybe, as Kyle says, they'll, they'll, they'll stop doing 75 basis point raises, and they'll do 50 basis point raises, and it'll reach a point where... The Fed will have to say to themselves, now, can we really keep raising interest rates at 50 basis point a clip and and inflation has only come down to maybe eight to seven over two or three months and then maybe seven to six over two or three more months and they're going to keep raising interest rates? Eventually, that's going to start to affect the stock market, I'm, I'm sure, and they're going to have to say they're going to use this story as cover. They're going to say, "Oh well, we can't we we can't do two percent anymore. We got to go to four percent. Our target's now four percent. So that gives them that gives them cover to stop raising rates, right? But that, very well that, could happen. That it could happened be, during Volcker. It that, happened during that the eighties. Could be, but that could be next spring or summer, possibly. But again, it's all data dependent. All right. and it all depends on how fast inflation is okay. coming down. If the Fed follows this path." Markets are likely to face a painful reckoning, one that could unwind much of the recent rally and extend what has been a tumultuous stretch for investors from retail traders to hedge funds to pension funds. Now, Joe, had I don't know if it was Joe or Kyle, found this article from a few weeks ago that we talked about that there is this statistic, if if the markets entered a bear market, which we did, and the had a bounce off the low retrace of 50% that's, that's right bounce 50% off its low that since 1950 the markets have never gone below that low again 
So, I mean, it could come back to it. It could get real close to it, but it didn't go below it. So it you know, kind of gives us an idea of oh, maybe, you know, was that June 15th a low for this bear market, for this particular bear market? Based on that statistic that goes back 72 years, it's a pretty it's a pretty high probability statistic. However, you know, we just had the worst six, you know, the worst six months in since 1970 and then the worst bond market ever in the first six months of this year. So statistics like this one that, that we, you know, happen to be talking about, they can be, uh, there can be broken. an outlier. It, there yeah. can be an outlier. Absolutely. Well, the market can still float around and be down 10 to 20% through the end of the year. All right. And that statistic will hold true. So well, the, it's that's not saying very, the market snapped back 50% and stayed there. It's just saying, right. like you said, didn't it retrace that low, which was 36 and some change on the S&P. So. Well, and, and that's a very good point, Joe. We could be caught in a trading range between the 200-day moving average and the 50-day moving average for an extended period of time until we get more time. Because as we've talked about on this program for weeks and weeks, if not months and months, is that the inflation picture is going to take time to work out. It isn't going to be cured overnight. The Fed is going to continue on their interest rate increasing path, although the path could slow a bit. And I think that from this run-up that we've seen over the last five to six weeks, I think the market is trying to send the signal that they feel that the accelerator on the interest rate increasing side is going to be lifted slightly. But that's not going to stop the Fed. It's not going to stop the Fed from raising rates. But everything is going to be data dependent on inflation because from an employment standpoint, the employment has just blown everybody away as far as the number of jobs that are being created. And then I started reading this past week of companies starting to do what they have coined job hoarding, which Jeff has talked about on past shows. He didn't actually say the word job hoarding, but this is now what they're labeling it, where these companies have worked so hard and so long to find great employees that they're going to do everything they can to hold on to them and not lay them off or get rid of them because they know how long and how hard it was to get them in the first place. So in order to have in a conversation I had with a client earlier this week asking me, do you think that we're going to have a more extreme recession than the quote unquote technical recession we're in now? My opinion is I don't think we're going to be seeing a more destructive recession because I think the employment side of the picture is going to stay more steady. It's going to have more stability. Even though we've heard some big corporations saying that they're going to slow or freeze hiring, some companies may be laying off a handful, small percentage uh, of their employees. I don't I don't feel that we're going to be seeing massive layoffs across this country from small, medium, and large corporations or companies. I just don't see that happening. I don't see the destruction on the employment side that would be needed to have a significant, deep recession. That's my opinion. I just don't think we're going to see it. Well, I know we're getting ready to come up here on a break. I want to make some more points from this article after we uh, come back from the break. You can't make it in 10 seconds? You no, still I got can't. 10 seconds. You, that's can't it? it. You just, when have you we done just... anything in 10 seconds? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a very good point. So 
Stay tuned because when we come back from the bottom of the break, we're going to keep going with this article from Friday's Wall Street Journal. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, We'll take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you, Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program, Jeff had found an article from the Friday's Wall Street Journal that's just, again, spurring debate and conversation here on the Money Wise program. That's a shock and surprise <laughs> as far as the debates. But, you know, before you get back to that article, Jeff, and, and as we've talked and we talked on the last segment, we talked on multiple other shows that this inflation picture is going to take time to work out. I was making the point that I don't think – a severe recession is in the cards with the way that the current employment picture is is looking and the employee hoarding that companies are doing. Yes, we can see some slowdown in hiring, freezing of hiring, some cutting of some staff, but I think for the majority of employees in this country, they have much stronger job stability because of how hard it's been for companies to find good candidates to put rear ends in the seats in these companies, whether they're working in an office or working remotely. And so if we don't see the job destruction, if we don't have job destruction, even with two quarters of negative GDP growth, I don't think it's going to lead us to a more destructive recession, even with the Federal okay. Reserve raising interest rates. Well, I was just going to say, doesn't that just give cover for the Fed to raise interest rates? I don't think the Fed is worried about – I think the Fed's not going to say this, as I've said previously – that they think that, that the unemployment level is too low. They're not going to come out and say that. It would be, it'd be about as likely as Biden coming out and saying that the unemployment rate is too low in a, in a midterm election year. That ain't going to happen, right? But no. the reality is the reality is, is that employment and the unemployment rate may be too low, and, when they, and it needs to move the other way. And conditions need to tighten. And everything that's happened here in this 18% move up in the markets, which also has resulted in what we moved, what, 50 basis points plus down in yield on the 10-year Treasury? That's loosened financial conditions. That's not what the Fed wants. The Fed wants to tighten conditions. Well, and we so, saw so the tightening happened, of the 10-year Treasury this past well, week. Well, we've seen that here in the last week, which – yeah, you know, we've been talking about this. Is give you kind of a little clue what we've done this uh, done this week in the portfolios. We've talked about being had, uh, owning an instrument in our portfolios all year long that profits when long term interest rates go higher, and we increased our investment in that instrument this year. It is the best performing single investment that we've made this year in essence, betting on higher interest rates. And so we've increased 
our allocation to this particular investment. Now we're up to 10% of the portfolio of anticipating higher interest rates. I, you know, we're, we're on knocking on the door of 3% 10-year Treasury yields. We were at 3.5% just a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Does anybody believe that the Fed's not going to raise interest rates uh, in September? Or no. not, and and not they're, raise they're them again. Raise. Not raise them again. Uh, I think I don't think there's a meeting in October. It's the first week in November. November, mm-hmm. and then one more in December. So we got September, first of November, and December. So we got three more interest rate increases this year. Whether it's going to be seventy-five basis points, whether it's going to be fifty basis points, whether it's going to be a quarter of a percent, they want to get to four and a half by the end of the year. So you do the math. Now, I don't know how a 20 PE on stocks, pushing a 21, if I, I think you gave me that statistic earlier on Friday, Kyle, we're pushing a 21 PE on the S&P 500. I don't know how that works at uh, 4.5% Fed funds. We're going to be what? Are we going to be pushing 4% 10-year treasuries by the end of the year? I've looked at some some charts, and it indicates to me that PEs in the past should be in the teens, and we're pushing well, and twenty. Were. And we're pushing twenty one. It well, and they, and they were, and they were in the teens when we were at the thirty six thirty six level on the S and P five hundred. We were right just under a sixteen PE. And I know that two weeks ago when we were doing the show talking about what the PE ratio was after we were completing the majority of the earnings. Um, this was from the August 5th Facts at Insight, where they were showing that the 12-month uh, forward P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 was 17.5, and now the five-year average P.E. forward P.E. of the S&P 500 is 18.6, and the 10-year average is 17. So at 17.5, this was just from August 5th, so obviously the run-up that we've seen in the market the last couple of weeks has definitely juiced the price-earnings multiple of the S&P 500, but you also have to look at all of the stocks in the S&P 500 that were way deep into bear market territory. It's just some of the larger market cap weighted stocks like the Apples of the world or the Microsofts of the world or the Googles of the world, they weren't down 50, 60, 70% like a lot of other stocks that we've seen in the S&P 500 because their market cap weighting was so large because the S&P is market cap weighted. So the behemoth tanker, super tanker stocks like an Apple, Apple didn't get taken out to the woodshed 35% down. Neither did Microsoft. Neither did Google. Now Amazon, that's a whole Amazon. other story. Amazon is another story, but yeah, Amazon Amazon. really but Amazon hadn't really done much and since the fourth quarter of twenty twenty. I mean twenty twenty one it was flat. I mean, it was flat. So, you know, and Amazon is a good bellwether for the retail side of the market, but let's not forget their big presence in um in the cloud with AWS. So well, you know, Jeff's, it's, Jeff's point, he's talking about 4% on the 10-year, and talking to different fund managers, I mean, it varies from three and a quarter to three and a half. I mean, four, I haven't heard four yet, 4%. On the 10-year the the, treasury? The 10-year, well, I see Jeff's point, but, but the know, Fed, it, the, the, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, the Fed's neutral rate, where they're trying to get to right now is 
you know, that's where the federal, where this is where the, yeah, that's three and a half percent is right now where they're trying to take the federal that, funds rate. That may be neutral, but I, I think they really want to, and they're going to have to get it into the fours, in my opinion. I, I don't think they're going to they be might. able to stop at three and a half. But three and a half right now is their target as of today, mm. as how things stand right now. But again, it's all going to be driven on inflation. And what is inflation doing? And Jeff, you were talking about some destruction. Well, well let's I was talking about the housing market. You know, destruction in the housing market, mortgage applications at 22-year lows. So we haven't seen builders really become – they haven't come back online since the since before the pandemic. And that goes all the way back to the first quarter of 2020. Yeah, there's so, definitely a recession that's – there's a recession in the housing market now. That's a, everything I've read. They're calling it a recession, and I, I have no reason to believe that that's not the case. You know, the challenge for both sides of the argument is that the Fed doesn't appear to have any confidence in the ability to accurately forecast inflation, which makes it difficult to predict when the central bank will stop raising rates. Duh. <laughs> us, us included. I love this quote. Yeah. This is a Yogi Berra quote from Chairman Powell. Quote, we now understand better how little we understand about inflation, end quote. <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. a Yogi Berraism right there. <laughs> but, but, but this is the advice that we have for all of our listeners, for all investors, as we've talked about on, on shows this, you know, this past four to five weeks, is that if you had – been actively managed and you had a proper allocation going into this year and you made adjustments and you got some powder dry and you were sitting in higher levels of cash that we talked about going back weeks that it's time to start just slowly. It's okay to slowly start dipping your toe back into the stock side of your portfolio. But again, methodically, not doing a cannonball into the deep end and saying, okay, well, I was sitting in a 50% allocation in stocks. Now I'm going to 80%, and I'm 65 years old. No, well, that is not what we're saying. Well, it, and we talked about it at the beginning of the year. The one thing we did know, if you had money in intermediate bonds, I'm looking at the Morningstar U.S. Core Plus Bond Index as we speak. You know, that particular index is down 9.17 for the year. So there's probably going to be a little bit more downside risk to, if you're sitting in intermediate bonds especially if rates keep going up. I mean, it's just inevitable. Well, how many times, Joe, do we talk on this program about paying attention to duration and bond mutual funds? Mm -hmm. If you own bond mutual funds, whether it's in a 401K, IRA, taxable account, the only thing you can control when you own bond mutual funds or bond exchange-traded funds is what is the average duration for that portfolio. And you had to keep it short, short, short. Because like you said, Joe, looking at the Bloomberg U.S. corporate investment grade through Thursday's close is negative 12.23%. It's actually performing worse than the S&P 500 through Thursday's close. And so for investors that think that they have ultimate safety in bonds, they're learning a very hard lesson this year. For the participant in the 401K that said, you know what, I'm getting completely out of stocks, moving everything into the bond options in my 401k and then they're scratching their head why am i negative why am i possibly down double digits in these bond mutual funds in my 401k this is the reason why and we've been warning and been talking about this on our program that you have to be aware of that so 
Let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from me, Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So before we went to commercial break, just talking a little bit more about portfolio strategy. As we've been talking the last several weeks on this program, if you were sitting at a higher level of cash, it's okay to just slowly start tiptoeing back into the stock side of your portfolio. But again, as we've been doing at Davidson Capital Management, we've been moving very slowly, very methodically, 1% to 2% allocation increases on the equity side of our portfolio over the last several weeks. But we're still sitting in our moderate allocations around a 45% allocation to stock. And so we're still below a 50% allocation. And where we're going to be by the end of the year, I couldn't tell you um, because it's, again, going to be predicated on a lot of the data that's we're still waiting to hear and that is coming in each and every month. But we have been slowly increasing allocation to stocks because we are long-term investors. We're not day traders. We're not fast money, quick buck artists. We are investors, not renters. Um, so for our listeners that are sitting on a higher level of cash, this is an opportunity to continue to slowly move back in. Because like we were saying at the beginning of the program, we are definitely short-term overbought. And we could be setting up a trading range between the 200-day moving average and the 50-day moving average on the S&P 500. And we could be in that trading range for a period of time. Because right now it's apparent that the 200-day line for the S&P 500 is our resistance line in the sand. So, any Jeff, acknowledge, I know. Any acknowledgement by the Fed that inflation is easing risks spurring further market gains. That could lead to even looser financial conditions, slowing the central bank's efforts to tame inflation. Now, this is one particular analyst view. It's it's kind of like that perversion of the markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, markets going up, interest rates going down could be bad in the sense that the Fed might have more reason to keep raising interest rates because inflation might not come down if the markets start doing better. Which, you know, that, that it just it kind of boggles the mind, right? That the Fed needs to get, we said house, housing prices, were, houses were too expensive. That's changing. Cars are too expensive. I don't think that that's really changed. changed that much. I don't think it's changed that much. It's going to be changing more once yeah, they get yeah, the yeah. chip supply in and get the cars out on the lot. So that yeah. will, I think, be uh, changing fourth, first, second quarter of next year. Okay, that's a so, that's six months away. Uh, yeah, I mean it's going to okay. take months. And the employment, 
the unemployment numbers have not started going back the other way. So though the Fed's not going to say this, I think there's the, the, the statistics say that we're appear to be overemployed, which is affecting labor costs, which what does that lead to? Inflation. Goldman Sachs did, a, did some research earlier this year that found that since 1950, there were 17 occasions that the S&P 500 fell at least 15%. Since 1950, 17 occasions. In 11 of those instances, or 65% of the time, the market only hit its trough around the time the Fed started easing monetary policy. So that meant 65% of the time, after a, you had a 15% decline in the market, the markets did not reach its final trough until the Fed stopped raising interest rates and started cutting interest rates. Now, did, did any of us believe that they're going to be cutting interest rates this year? No. 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 Unless there is some unbelievably miraculous decline in inflation down to below 2% between now and the end of the year, which isn't going to happen. It's just, a, it's just not going to happen. Well, can I give you a, another statistic on the other sure. side of things, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Now, this there's goes always back, two sides. Yeah, there's always two sides. Now, this only goes back to data back to 1995, so obviously the time period isn't as long as Goldman mm-hmm. Sachs going back to 1950. But as of June 17th, which was the day after we hit the 36-36 level in the S&P 500, there has only been three occasions since 1995, including June 17th of this year, where the stock market, the stocks in the S&P 500 have been this oversold. So this could be another statistic data point, which has brought in some of this buying that we have seen since June the 17th. I I will totally and 100% agree with you. I think the, the, the sentiment got extremely negative. We did get, I think we were very oversold. The one thing about this whole rally, Kyle, that none of us have said, how much of this rally has been short covering? You know, how much of this is actual new money being put in the market or advisors that had cut their allocations a bunch and then started to put some money back in, like us? And how much of this was just shorts covering? You know, they'd made a lot of money and they just, it's like, hey, let me just ring the register on this. Well, you know, with the fact that the 10 year treasury yield went down so much over this period of time, you know, leads me back to this article that people really were buying in, the investors were really buying into this notion that, oh, yeah, we're going to be cutting interest rates next year. And and it just makes, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The only way that interest rates get cut, the only way that interest rates get cut next year, is we have to have a substantially lower markets. And the Fed put, which was also part of this article, which we didn't even discuss, actually comes into play. The Fed put, meaning the Fed's not going to allow the stock market to decline below a certain level negatively without saying something about interest rates or cutting interest rates or stopping raising interest rates. They call that the Fed put, which goes back back to to the late 1980s. 
for, for the Fed to cut rates doesn't necessarily mean a dramatic reduction in the value of the stock market. We could also see dramatic reduction in inflation and get back to the situation pre-COVID pandemic. <laughs> where we had, happen this year. Where, where, not this year, but going into next year, where we saw the Fed trying to reflate because they were running below their 2% mandate yeah. for so many years. They were trying to get it back up. So the market doesn't necessarily have to be devastated for the Fed to cut rates in 2023. It could also be driven by a dramatic reduction of monetary inflation. I think the Fed just stops stops raising interest rates. They don't cut them. They just stop raising them. Well, it'll be a wait and see, but it's all going to take time to work out. So stay nimble, stay active in your portfolio, know what you own. And if you don't know what you own, that's when you call us to get a portfolio review and analysis. So with that, we're going up to the top of the hour break. We're going to take the break, go into the news. When we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and heading into investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on Money Wise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office, toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast on Apple Podcasts, where you can like the show and leave us a comment. So as we're diving into this second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, shifting gears into investor education is like we like to dedicate the second hours of every weekend's program going in and really pulling the curtain back and trying to educate investors uh, all across this state and anyone who's listening to our podcast and our terrestrial radio show. And was thinking about some topics from an educational standpoint, and, and wanted, I came up with a title, and I alluded to it just a little bit, but I wanted to talk about, in this second hour, of the things that Wall Street won't tell you. Now, to give a little bit of history of Davidson Capital Management, why our father started our firm back in 1989, is he wanted to pull the curtain back on Wall Street. Pull the curtain back, bring integrity, honesty, ethics, transparency into the investor-advisor relationship. And in all of our years of business and all the hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of portfolios, portfolio reviews we have done, we have come to just notice a very ongoing, consistent theme when we do these portfolio reviews. And we're doing portfolio reviews from prospective clients that have accounts at Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Ameriprise, Fidelity, Schwab, Edward Jones. I mean, you name any major uh, brokerage firm in this country that markets on television, print, ad, computer, what have you, follows you all across the internet, 
we have reviewed these types of portfolios. And over the last 30 plus years of being in business, we just see these very consistent themes recurring again and again and again in prospective clients' portfolios. And we talk about it from time to time during the first hour of the Weekend's Money Wise program throughout the years. But I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this topic and really pulling the curtain back and talking about the things of what these big Wall Street firms are not going to be telling you as an investor. And as we've said from day one on the Money Wise program is that you always have to dig deeper. You, you cannot take things for face value. You have to have your questions on hand when you're out there interviewing a prospective advisor that you're wanting to work with or if you're already working with an advisor, questions that you need to go back and ask and get these answers. And if you're not receiving proper answers or answers that are just not making you feel very at ease, then maybe it's time for you to take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis to get that second opinion. And that's the purpose for us to be doing the portfolio reviews and analysis that we do and have been doing for the past 30 plus years is to give that second opinion to investors. So one of the first trends and themes that we're constantly seeing from all these major brokerage firms when we do portfolio reviews is portfolios that are just chalked full with a multitude of exchange traded funds, and mutual funds. And when I say chalk full, I can take an example of prospective client's portfolio who is working with Fidelity. And in one account, not only had over 30 exchange-traded funds, but had over 25 mutual funds. So we're talking over 50 individual positions in either mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. And the first question that comes to my, my mind is, why? Why do you need so many? Why is this shotgun blast approach where tiny bits of this prospective client's assets were allocated to such a vast, large number of exchange-traded funds and mutual funds? So I think you have to remember about exchange-traded funds, but you know, by and large, the exchange-traded funds that we invest in and we see that in these other organizations invest in, uh, they are in in and of themselves diversified investments. They have hundreds of different securities inside, say, an individual exchange-traded fund. Same holds true for mutual funds. They can contain hundreds of different investments. So when you have a portfolio that has 50, 60 different exchange-traded funds and mutual funds, and each one of those exchange-traded funds and mutual funds holds 100-plus securities, well, you can imagine, well, that's it. just, if you each one of them held 100 securities and you had 50 different positions, that would be 5,000 different securities. Now, they don't actually own 5,000 different securities in, in all of these uh, exchange-traded funds and mutual funds combined. What they end up, what ends up happening is, is there is so much overlap when you look at the portfolio in totality. They they might have ten different exchange traded funds and mutual funds that invest in the exact same asset class, 
which mean me like large cap growth stocks or small cap growth stocks or mid cap growth stocks or value stocks, so on and so on and so on. And so at the end, at the end, our opinion is when we see a portfolio like this, to, to us, what it appears is it appears to be marketing more than anything, because it's not really serving the client. It's, it, it's, it's over diversification in names, but it's really over, this is so totally over diversified. It makes no sense to, to design a portfolio this way, except for one reason, and that is marketing. In well, our opinion. And, and, and the marketing that also is appearance. Right. To appear as if they're doing more right. in your portfolio than what they actually are. Because at Davidson Capital Management, if you're in our asset builder program where we own nothing but exchange traded funds and no load mutual funds, we don't have 25 different exchange traded funds or mutual funds. You know, there's been times where we've had maybe up to nine, maybe 10, sometimes seven. What we do as portfolio managers as in-house money managers as we vet each and every one of the positions each one of the exchange traded funds and mutual funds to determine if they're in our opinion from our analysis and research the best of breed for the respective asset class that we want represented in the portfolio at this particular time and so i want to hold right there and we'll pick up this conversation on the other side of the break you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. So, if you're just tuning in for this weekend's Moneywise program, we're continuing with investor education and talking about what Wall Street won't tell you. And so, before we went to break, talking about portfolios that we have reviewed that just have a multitude of exchange traded funds and mutual funds, a a situation where you get over diversified in a portfolio and why these major brokerage firms across the country do this. And in our opinion, it is for marketing. It is to appear as if they're doing more work in a client's portfolio than they actually are. And so before we went to break, I was talking about the process that we go through inside of our asset builder program where we own nothing but uh, no-load mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. And these are for clients that have less than a million dollars of investable assets in one singular account. Now, when we go through our process, we're looking for best of breed. So when we're looking for a large-cap growth manager, we're sending the large-cap growth actively managed no-load mutual fund managers through our gauntlet. They're going through our proprietary process of research and analysis, utilizing our 70-plus years of combined experience here at Davidson Capital Management to find what we consider the best of breed large cap growth manager for that particular asset class period. Not two of them, not three, not six, but the best. Now, once we make a selection of that particular no-load mutual fund for that particular asset class, 
they will then be continuously vetted to ensure that they're adhering to why we have selected them to be inside of the portfolio for our clients. So we're going to be looking at consistency of style. We're going to be looking at the portfolio and the information we can ascertain. What are their top 10 holdings? How concentrated or unconcentrated are they? What holdings do they own? Do we continue to agree with their investment management philosophy? So once we buy this position, it's not just buy and forget it. We're going to be constantly sending it through our gauntlet. And if for some reason it falls out of our criteria through our proprietary system, guess what? They get sold. They get sold. So it's not just buy and hold. We're buying and it's constant homework. Joe, I know you wanted to say something. Well, sure. And I think going through this process and working quite a bit in the 401k space, we have our process already set up to where we know if one of these particular investments are going to be on the watch list. And from time to time, the three of us will put our heads together. But when you have a team approach, you really dive down deep into the, into the particular mutual funds. And one thing you didn't mention, Kyle, or I don't think is manager tenure. You know, if you have a new manager in a mutual fund, what does that mean to that particular portfolio? We might watch it temporarily. And if it's somebody that's coming on board that's been with the team a while and they're going to take over the day-to-day portfolio management, you know, we might give them a pass. But but also part of the number side of it, and we were talking about this uh, a couple times in the past, is portfolio management is just not numbers. There's also It's also art to a certain extent. And some funds may do better in a down market than others. Um, and I wanted to bring that up, too. I mean, portfolio management is a combination of multiple things. And that also bodes true with mutual funds and, to a lesser extent, ETFs. But, but And, again, that's where research comes into play. When we go through our research process, we're looking at upside capture. We're looking at downside capture. We're looking at all of these technical and fundamental indicators to determine whether or not we feel that this is going to be the best investment option. But what we have seen from the other big Wall Street firms is, well, let's just shotgun blast and put, let's put six, let's put 10 large cap growth managers. One or two of them have got to hit. One or two of them got to do a good year. Well, what about the rest of your money in the other five or six that are, are not doing well? What, what happens to the overall performance of your portfolio? You know, the other thing you have to determine and figure out, what are you actually paying for the multitude of all of these different investment options? If you do have 20, 30, 40 different exchange-traded funds and mutual funds in your portfolio, and we're just seeing this to be occurring more and more as the years have gone on. And I've had conversations with prospective clients that are with very large, very well-known, very reputable money managers where they have been told to their face that human beings do not manage money anymore at these firms. And they allow computers or algorithms to be making the investment decisions that, as you said, Joe, they're trying to equate money management down to numbers, down to technicals. But I hate to tell you, just Joe, just like you said, and this was something that our father taught Jeff and I many, many moons ago, is that managing money is a science, but it's also an art. And here's the thing that you have to remember. Algorithms are computer programs written by human beings. What if those human beings got their scenarios crossed? Their math was off. Their assumptions were wrong. That, that algorithm is worthless. It's absolutely worthless because human beings have to write the actual algorithm. And so what we have seen in these super mega 
money management firms is they have become victims of their own success, of their own asset gathering to where they physically can't have human beings managing money anymore for their clients. And so then you well, as well, the they, client, they could, but they the could, problem is, the problem is it's profits. That's right. It's profits. It's, it's profits. So the question you have to ask, if you are a client of one of these type firms, what, what am I paying my management fee for if a computer is doing it? So I'm getting charged all these management fees for the internal expenses for the exchange traded funds and the mutual funds. Then I pay a portfolio management fee on top of that. But you're telling me that you're having a computer make the decisions because you're just such a giant super tanker of a money manager. You know, the question I would be asking is what happens if there's a dramatic event in the market? How fast can you move? How fast can you make changes in my portfolio? And they're not going to be able to answer that question and give you a definitive answer. Which leads us to really the most important part of, I think really the most important part of all this is that the person that you're talking to the vast majority of the time at the big mega Wall Street firms, the list that you gave in that first segment, Kyle, and others, is the person that you're talking to is not actually the decision maker. The decisions are made someplace else, either by a computer or a human in a computer, and you never, you have no relationship with the decision maker. The only relationship you have is with the person that's charged with maintaining the relationship. And so in, in the vast majority of cases, and I have never seen in the history of us doing portfolio reviews, I've never seen any of those Wall Street firms beat us in terms of management fees, overall cost to the client. So if, if we're, if our, if our value proposition at Davidson Capital Management is you get to actually speak with the people that are actually making every single investment decision and doing it for less than the big Wall Street houses in much more focused portfolios. You know, our, fo- our portfolios are laser focused. The shotgun approach the shotgun approach is like putting five quarterbacks on the field at the same time or putting five pitchers on the mound at the same time. <laughs> you don't do that. What do you do? You put your best players on the field. You got a bench, but you also have the best players on the field at the right time. You don't, you don't buy 10 different large cap stock ETFs and mutual funds and put them in the portfolio. That makes no sense whatsoever. Pick the best one. That's what you put in the portfolio. Why can't the big Wall Street houses with all their people and all their computers and all their uh, all the things they have at their disposal research? Why why do they have to build a portfolio where they where, where they shotgun approach everything? Yes, Kyle. I- I can answer part of that question because of proprietary relationships they have with the outside mutual fund managers and exchange traded fund providers and the revenue sharing agreements that they have. Why charge your client a one and a quarter percent management fee where you can charge them one and a quarter percent management fee, then invest their money in a mutual fund that charges another one percent, and then that manager of that 1% mutual fund kicks back to you another quarter of 1%. And now you're charging your client, you're making even more money off of one client. 
because of the kickbacks and the proprietary relationships that they have. So then as if you are a client of these types of firms, you have to ask yourself, are the players on my field the best players? Or are they the players that pay the biggest kickbacks to the firm that, that I work with? So then the firm that you're working with, you have to think, how objective are they in their investment-making or portfolio design process when they're getting paid X number of dollars from this outside mutual fund manager or this outside exchange-traded fund manager? Are they truly objective? And I can answer that question right now. The answer is absolutely not. They are not objective when they're getting revenues shared with them. Well, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can leave your comments, and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program, going into investor education, and really this second hour, we're talking about what Wall Street won't tell you. And so before we went to break, we're talking about the lack of objectivity that we have seen, in our opinion, over the last 30-plus years of being in business with these mega large Wall Street firms from the Merrill Lynch's, the Edward Joneses of the world to the Ameriprises, proprietary relationships, meaning revenue sharing that they are receiving from outside mutual fund managers, from outside exchange traded fund managers, that clouds the objectivity of the firm that an investor is working with to ensure that these particular investments find their way in your portfolio. But the question you have to ask yourself, were these the best choices? Was this the best to breed? Yeah, Joe. Well, sure. Kyle, dovetailing on what you're talking about, and just the other week, I was reviewing a, looking at a particular firm, and one thing we do is, yes, we research our investments. We also research our competitors. We also look at their ADV Part 2, other disclosures. But if they are using proprietary mutual funds, a lot of times – the point is, what is Wall Street not telling you? Well, that firm, generally speaking, has to tell you, and it actually said there in black and white, there's a conflict of interest because this particular firm is using their own proprietary funds, and it's disclosed in black and white. So you can actually pull back the curtain on Wall Street, but you have to know how to do your own research on this. And, and most individual investors won't. You can go to broker check. You can type in the name of the firm that you working with that you're thinking about working with and you can go into their ADV part two through the SEC website to be able to research what potential conflicts of interest what other proprietary relationships they have I know of one particular firm that has commercials all the time they actually disclose how much in revenue they're receiving on an annual basis from these outside firms and so it it's no surprise that when we do portfolio reviews of prospective clients that are working with this particular firm, 
why we typically see the top three mutual fund families that provide the biggest amount of revenue to this firm as the only three mutual fund families that show up in a portfolio. And, and, and again, this is, this is what should really be raising question marks above anyone's head that is working with these large firms. And then you also have to ask yourself, why am I working with these larger firms? Does a larger firm that have the marble columns, as dad calls it, the fancy, you know, the fancy offices, the big name brands, the huge marketing campaigns and all the commercials and what have you, does that provide a higher level of comfort to you? as an investor, a higher level of security. I mean, that is what they are relying on. This is why they do it. They're relying on their marketing and their fancy offices and all the sharp-dressed folks that work for them to, to, to create this sense of security when what they're doing in the portfolios from our reviews and analysis isn't anything to write home to mom about. It's the we're big, and so we must be good if we're this big. Yeah. It just means they're bigger, great marketers. Bigger, bigger doesn't mean better. Bigger just means they, they spend more money on marketing. That's right. They're bigger asset gatherers. And, you know, we've utilized the MoneyWise program to educate for the last 16-plus years, to educate investors, to warn them. You know, we'll, we, we will make 10 investment decisions. Six to seven of them will work. Three to four of them won't. We're not saying that we're the end-all, be-all money manager, but the one thing, that, the, the multiple things that we are, it's transparent, completely honest and ethical. And as far as from a fee standpoint, there is not another firm on the street that can touch us when it comes to the management fees that we've charged. We have 100%. no conflicts of interest. And we don't have any revenue sharing. No one pays us to own any of their investments. All the investments are vetted and put into and, – and, and client money is invested in it based on the merits of that particular investment, not based on any sort of revenue-sharing agreement that, that, we, that we don't have with anybody and never have had and never will have. Yes, Joe. Yeah, well, Joe. I, one of the things we're talking about, it, really about proprietary relationships with mutual funds – in mutual funds, ETFs, but the one thing that we always emphasize is that as asset allocation. And when you have a down market or you have a correction or during the pandemic uh, or during the financial crisis, your first line of defense is what? And we all know what this is. It's asset allocation, right? Individual uh, equity select. Active asset allocation. Correct. So my point being is if you are interviewing an advisor at a particular firm, and there are some that are out there that do their own research, Ask them, do they create their own asset allocation models? Are they going with what the firm recommends? That's a very, that's a question you need to ask. And if that's the case, that's great. Ask them, okay, when was the last time you made a decision on a particular mutual fund or ETF or separately managed account that's, that, that's in that allocation? So well, getting I, it, that's a big part of, of the investment management process and active versus passive management is who's doing the allocations. Well, and, and, and you brought up a point because – Yes, we're talking about all the major firms out there, and there are still some diamonds in the rough. There are still some traditional stockbrokers on the financial sales side of the business that deal, that still do their own security selections, that do manage their own portfolios. There, there are. They're few and far between, but there are. But your line of questioning, Joe, is absolutely dead on. 
where are you finding your research? Because if they are selecting their own securities, whether it's mutual funds, exchange traded funds, or individual stocks, where are you getting your research? That is a great question to ask. If they're just getting the research from the firm that employs them, is that truly objective? I mean, I could bore our listeners with the multi-layered process, our proprietary process that we go through in vetting every single security that we select at Davidson Capital Management, but I don't want, especially if people are listening to the show driving, I don't want to put them to sleep and cause any accidents. But when we go and do our research, we're getting our information from a multitude of different sources, not you know, not, not to also exclude our own proprietary screening process of 44 points of screens that we have put into place. Screen one, 22 points. Screen two, an additional 22 points to vet our list of individual stocks when, when we're owning individual stocks. And then we cross-reference that from a multitude of other research firms, not just one not just our custodian who's Schwab, we look at a multitude of different ones. And so that is another important question to ask. If you do work with an advisor that is actively selecting their own securities, but then to follow up if they are doing that selection is when was the last time you made changes in your portfolio? What is your performance track record? How old and long is that performance track record? Well, one thing when we're doing research and we use databases to input when we're doing a portfolio review, it's kind of interesting because there are some prospective clients that a year and a half ago have have put everything into the software, put all their positions, all our asset allocations, and then maybe a year later or a year and a half later, they haven't come on board as a client yet. And I'll say, hey, can you give me that, that statement from that portfolio they reviewed a year and a half ago? If the allocations are the same, and the securities are the same, and they're charging you 1% or more, you really got to look yourself in the mirror and go, what am I doing? You know, I, and I've, I've seen it multiple times. That is not active management. That is a portfolio that is put together on hope and prayer. And, and from a, a, a scientific versus, you know, science versus art perspective, you look set at it. Yeah, set it and forget yeah. it is not a long-term successful investment strategy. And we certainly saw this in the financial crisis of 08, 09, uh, where we met with prospective clients that had monies invested with the big Wall Street firms. And when, when a client tells you, well, I lost 40%, 50% in, in 2008, well, I know two things that happened. One, there was far too much money invested in stocks in that particular portfolio and two no one was managing anything to have lost that much money and that's what the vast i think the vast majority of the uh, of the wall street firms uh count on the statistic that the market's going to be up 80 percent of the time that's just what the statistics say 74 percent but close okay 74 percent since 1926 and so they, they play the probabilities. We just stay invested all the time. Yeah. We, we, we very rarely sell. We very rarely reallocate. We just, we're, we're always Final. in it for the long, we're long-term investors, quote unquote. <clears throat> and so the, the other 26% of the time when the markets are down, every once in a while, 
you'll have a 30% down year. It's very rare, but they're out there. Most of the time it's down five, down 10, whatever. But the point of the matter is, is there's no active management occurring. And really the key to long-term successful investment management is not necessarily beating the S&P when you have years like when you have back-to-back or back years of up markets. It's keeping your hole shallow when the markets are down. That's where a real active management comes into play. Yeah, because remember, you lose 50% of the value of your portfolio. You have to make 100% just to get back to where you started. And I want to pick up on that point on the other side of the break. So let's do that now. Let's take our next break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts, where you can comment, and don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of this weekend's Money Wise program and wrapping up our investor education on what Wall Street won't tell you, and right before we went to break, we were talking about what, what, what we truly believe what builds and maintains long-term wealth. It's not capturing every percentage gain in up years. It's keeping your hole shallower in down years, playing a great defense. That is the best long-term strategy for offense. So we were talking about all the major brokerage firms of every name brand that you could think of that has commercials and print ads, what have you, going through situations like the financial crisis or even going back to the dot-com bubble bursting. As Jeff said in the last segment, when the stock market 74% of the time since 1926 has had positive returns – when we have those abnormal years where we're down, have a 30% down year, like during the financial crisis, or have dramatic, long, protracted pullbacks in the market, brokerage firms are just going to say, stay the course. Just stay the course. You don't want to make any adjustments. You don't want to make any changes. Well, we would recommend, yeah, you don't go 100% to cash. We would agree with every Wall Street firm in existence. You never go 100% cash because that is a failed strategy. But playing a great defense with a proper allocation, active asset management, very stringent proprietary security screening process, and keeping that hole shallower allows you to recover that much faster. Because let's say you go down 50% and you need 100% to get back to where you started. And to get to that 100%, it's going to take the next two to three years to get there. Well, what if your portfolio was only down 15% and then you were able to get back in at a lower price with the cash that was raised because there was active management and you played active defense, your portfolio would be far ahead of a portfolio that just was static during this downturn and didn't play defense. Another reason why Wall Street doesn't pay defense is because of revenues. Absolutely right. Because if they if, if they were to reduce securities in, a, in an investor's portfolio and go to cash for a period of time, 
those that that those securities that were sold would not be generating any revenue sharing for the firm because they would no longer be in the portfolio. And we saw that a lot with one particular firm, which I'm not going to name, that has a lot of revenue sharing agreements. Uh, but that's that's probably the biggest reason why Wall Street doesn't sell when 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 times get you know capitalism the nature of capitalism is there's going to be booms and then there's going to be periods where things are very quiet flat if you will and then sometimes they're busts that's just the nature of capitalism and so in the bust times if wall street who's who would already be suffering because it was bust times would go in and start selling in mass securities out of their clients portfolios Remember, it's buy low, sell high. If they did that, then they would also be cutting their own throats and reducing their revenues even more. And so they don't. And that's why we, time and time again, we hear in the when we the tough times. There will be tough times again. There always are. We'll see these same folks in our offices telling us their story. Well, you know, we we're doing so well for so long. And that's the other thing, you know, people get complacent. Investors get complacent when the markets do well for extended period of times. They don't care about revenue sharing. They don't care about way too many. They they don't care about management fees. They don't care about the, the, the excess number of securities in their portfolio. They don't care about how they vote have 10 large cap mutual funds in their portfolio and 20 small cap mutual funds in their portfolio, because every month I'm getting a statement and it's going higher and I'm making more money and I got a big smile on my face and you get complacent. But then when it turns, it's like you come visit, you know, someone like Davidson capital and we look at the portfolio. So, well, here's the reason why the portfolio failed so miserably in the down markets for this, 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 and this. Oh, and by the way, you're paying this for all of this, this failed strategy. And people are like, wow, I wish I'd have known this. I wish I'd have heard you earlier. I wish I'd have heard if we this had segment. A dollar, if we had a dollar for every time we have heard that over the last 30 plus years, and we hear it all the time. And so our recommendation would be to save yourself the grief, not getting complacent, as we have always said, and take this right from Joe, stealing your thunder, Joe, knowing what you own. Well, if, if you don't truly know what you own, you don't truly know what your asset allocation model looks like, you don't know how much you're paying, you don't know if it's being actively managed, this is why we offer portfolio reviews and analysis to prospective clients to get a second opinion from a team of portfolio managers that have over 70 years of combined experience that truly manage money in-house, that do our own research, that select our own securities. And oh, by the way, we haven't said it this whole segment, we eat our own cooking, meaning we personally own the same securities our clients own. So you can bet that they've been vetted to an inch of their life because if they're going to be going into my portfolio or Jeff's or to Joe's, they're darn good enough to be in our clients' portfolios and they're going to be properly managed. So save yourself the grief before that downturn or on the other side of a downturn when you've lost 20, 25, 30% of your nest egg's net worth because you felt that, well, I was with so-and-so firm. They're so well-known. They've been around for 70 or 80 years, 
they have hundreds of billions of dollars under management. They're supposed to be good because I hear about them all the time. What, why did they not perform for me? And this is what happens. They're great asset gatherers. They're great victims, marketers. Great marketers. They're the victims of their own success at asset gathering to where they can no longer truly actively manage money hands-on and leave it up to a computer algorithm that was also written by a human being that could have a lot of different failed strategies in that algorithm and wind, and who winds up becoming the victim of all of this? You, the investor. This is why we do portfolio reviews, to peel, to pull that curtain back and to tell you and to teach you and let you know about the things that Wall Street won't tell you. With that, we're coming up to the end of this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. You can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, subscribe to the Money Wise podcast on Apple Podcasts. And with that, for Jeff... Our good man, Joe, this is Kyle Davidson wanting to thank you for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.